0: My name is Colin, I'm the family pastor here at the Kirk, and I would love if you would allow me just to start with one more quick prayer here. God, would you be glorified? Would you have your way in these moments? Would you let your words speak to our hearts? This is a tough one for us to think about and be honest with ourselves about, and so would you uh, open us to do that, to be reflective, to listen to your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in seventh grade, I fell in love. It was a girl in my homemaking class, and I honestly can't even remember her name right now. But we're going to say that it was Stacy. And so I just—all I remember is she had the bangs in the late '80s. This is 1987, and she had the makeup, and she was so pretty—one of the prettiest girls in the school. And I remember specifically. One day, we were making pillows that looked like lips. I don't know why that was the project (laughs) they were doing, but we were sewing these little pillows, and I just kept looking over at Stacy, and Stacy kept looking over at me, and we would smile, and I would get all the butterflies, and my heart would start pounding, and we did that for like half the semester. We just kept looking at each other. until one day, you know how this goes maybe, she sent her friend over, And she sat down next to me and said, hey, Colin, Stacy wants to know if you want to go out. It's like, yes, I do. And so she went. She told Stacy. And so for the next two weeks, we continued looking at each other (laughs) and smiling and getting butterflies. And then her friend, two weeks later, comes back over. I'm like, oh, now it's going to get good. This is where the relationship's going to kick off. And she said, Colin, Stacy's breaking up with you. (laughs) Wow. Middle school relationships. I don't know. Maybe they get better than that. But that was one of my experiences of middle school relationships. And I thought about that relationship. I thought about middle school relationships are hevel, meaningless. That's the word we keep hearing in Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless. Middle school relationships and a lot of other things that we try to put our hearts into, that we try to look to for pleasure. And this word hevel, uh, Aaron talked about last week, he used the illustration of a bubble. It's like it's there and you try to grab it and it's gone. It pops. It's a metaphor that the author uses that literally means like smoke or vapor. It is real, you see it, but when you try to grasp it, you can't. And he uses it in a couple ways in this book. One, to mean just temporary. Kind of like that relationship. It was very temporary. It's here and then it's gone. It's Hevel. Like a lot of the things we enjoy in our lives. They're here and they're gone. But he also uses it uh, in most of the book to mean life in a lot of ways is like a paradox. We think it's supposed to go one way And it doesn't. It turns out another way. Things happen that we don't expect. We don't know how to make sense of it. It doesn't make any sense to us. It's Hevel. And so today we're going to be looking at the second chapter in Ecclesiastes. And the teacher, who we're told, uh, has experienced all these things. Aaron talked last week about he gained all knowledge and wisdom. And in the end, he said it was Hevel. It was meaningless. It wasn't worth much at all. I have a question I want to ask you. Fill in the blank for yourself. If I had blank, I would be happy. I think all of us might put different things in there. Some might be similar, and maybe at different times in your life you might have put different things in there. If I just make the team, I will be happy. If I just get into the right school, I will be happy. If I just get the job that I really want, I'll be happy. If I find the right person, I'll be happy. Whatever it is, at different times, we put different things in that. And we have this expectation, especially when we become Christians and we start to follow Jesus, we have this idea in our head that part of Jesus' job part of God's job is to help us get those things that we want. We think his role is to help make us happy, to make our lives go the way that we want them to go. And when we don't get what we want, or we get it, and it turns out not being as awesome as we thought it was going to be, we have a problem. And oftentimes, we have a problem with God. We blame God. We wonder why he's not giving us the things we want, why things are turning out wrong. And I think... I love the book of Ecclesiastes because it helps us realize that our problem's not with God, really. Our problem is with our expectations of God. Our expectations are wrong. In fact, we just, if you're reading through the Bible, you see Proverbs, part of the wisdom literature, which tells us, here's in general how things work. If you give your heart to the Lord, if you follow him, he will make your path straight things will go well in your life. And generally speaking, those things are true. But we get to Ecclesiastes and it's kind of like that, but not always. Sometimes it doesn't work out like that. And when that happens, what do we do with it? And so here we are. The teacher has tried with knowledge and wisdom. He's gained it all and found it wanting. And so today in chapter 2, we're going to be looking at His next experiment, he experiments with pleasure. And he talks about, uh, Aaron mentioned this last week, the idea of life under the sun. And when you think about that, I want you to think of his meaning of like life without God. I want to see, he says, if I just pour my whole self into all this world has to offer, I take God out of the equation, what is there for me? What pleasure can I have? What will it be like without him? Will it be fulfilling without him. And so we're going to see the experiment, and he sets it up like this in verse one. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And then he gives us right away his findings. He tells us up front what he finds. He says, but that also proved to be meaningless. I'm going to give myself to all pleasure, but it's going to prove to be meaningless. And so then he goes into the list, and we're going to run through these fairly quickly. But he gives us everything that he tried. First, he starts with distraction. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? So this was probably before uh, movie quotes, you know, the funny movie quotes that we say to each other. It was before the invention of dad jokes and all those things we have today to laugh about. But I'm sure that he had plenty of friends to sit around and talk about. They had stories to tell. He had the ability to bring in the funniest people in the kingdom to entertain him and he tried it and he laughed and I think he probably experienced like all of us do if you think to when you're laughing really hard with people and then you hit like the oh man that was funny pause. Like you get to the end and you're just like ah, ha. oh man that was funny. And then you're just kind of staring at each other and it's like back to reality. We enjoy the funny, we enjoy the laughter, but then reality sets in again, and it's over. And so he tries the laughter, he gets to the end of it, and he realizes he needs to try something different. So he tries another distraction. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So he decides, I mean, life can be funny with the laughter, but what about what about wine? And I think he probably tried it in two ways. It talks about wisdom and folly in this section. I think he probably tried it as like a wine connoisseur. Like, I just want to enjoy it. I want to understand it, learn about it. It even tells us in a few moments that he planted vineyards for himself. But it also says he tried it with foolishness, and drunkenness, and partying, He was living the whole life, and yet he finds that wanting as well. So how about paradise? He tried distraction. How about paradise? I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees in them. I made reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. We're told in Scripture it took Solomon 13 years to build his house. More time than it took him to build the temple. And it was bigger than the temple that he built for God. And in fact, if you look here, it says he built houses, more than one for himself. And gardens, we even get this language in these verses about Eden, the same trees of every kind, the same same thing we see in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. It's like he's trying to build Eden for himself, a place he can get away and be happy on his own but that didn't work either. And so he tries status. He tries collecting things. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He had it all. I don't know if you can imagine, but just think of all the things you don't like to do. If you had somebody else that you could just say, hey, go do this for me, and they would do it, I mean, that would be nice, right? We would all enjoy that. That's what he had, people waiting on him hand and foot. And we, most of us, at least the ones that live in the city, don't count herds as the things we tend to tend to collect, but that was a big deal back in the day. That was also a sign of wealth. It meant he could throw all the parties he wanted to and have all the food for his friends to eat when they came over. He had it. Not only that, then he goes to wealth. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces, which talks about military victories, not only his people that he was collecting money from, but faraway lands that he had conquered that were also sending him money. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 9.27, it tells us that he amassed so much silver that it was just like rocks. There's as much silver around as there were rocks in Jerusalem more than he knew what to do with. It's like it was devalued because he had so much of it. So he had the wealth, and yet he wanted more. So then he goes to entertainment and sex. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. Can you imagine if you wanted uh, some good music, you didn't turn on Spotify or turn on the radio or put on an album. You just send to have your favorite band flown in to play a private concert for you in your backyard, you and all your friends. That's what he did, basically. He brought in the best musicians to play and to sing for him. And then it talks about a concubine or a harem of concubines. We're told in Scripture that Solomon had 700 wives, and 300 concubines. And a concubine was just given to a man for his sexual pleasure. So basically, he's saying, I've tried, I've tried it all. Everything you think you would want, there was no end to what I tried. And the last was fame. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. So he was a famous military victor. He was famous for having all the things that everyone would have been jealous of. And he tells us even, I still had my wisdom. I'm still the wisest guy out there as well. He had fame. And then he tells us it was all fleeting. Again, he comes to his conclusion here, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. So he just wants to prove his point again. I had everything. I tried everything. Anything that I looked at that I wanted, I had. I just had to snap my fingers, and it was mine. And I did that whenever I saw something I wanted. And it's interesting that he says he his heart didn't find delight in the things, didn't find delight in the wealth or in the herds or in the houses or any of that other stuff. It just says my heart took delight in all my labor. I think what he's saying there is, I took delight in being able to say, look what I did, I did all of this. It was me. Twelve generations earlier, before Solomon, Moses stood before the people. And he was describing the promised land and all that God wanted to bless them with. He was telling them how good it was going to be and how much that they were going to have and how blessed they were going to be. And then he gave them this warning. And I want you to listen to this warning in light of what we just heard from the teacher. It's from Deuteronomy 8. who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. So he's living out what he was warned about, his people were warned about, generations earlier. He's been blessed mightily. And the thing he takes pleasure in is saying, I did this all on my own. I did this by my own hands. And what does he get? Even from that, the final verse, his final analysis, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Hevel, A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Apart from God, there was nothing for me. It was worthless. And so I think this is the point where, uh, speaking to me and maybe to you, we have to be honest with ourselves, and I know we can do this with people in our own culture, but we think about, man, you must have done it wrong. How did you mess that up? You had everything you wanted. If that was me, I would be happy. If that was me, my life would turn out differently. I mean, even in our culture, we see athletes or celebrities who they have everything, seemingly everything the world says that's going to make you happy, and they blow it and they mess it up, or they're not happy, or their life is falling apart. And there's something deep inside of us that can think, man, what a waste. Someone should have given that to me. I would have done better with it. I would have been happier. We wonder what's wrong with those people. But here's the deal, and this is where we have to get honest with ourselves, I think. It's, it's the world, yes, out there, the culture that is running after these things, but it can grab at our own hearts, too, as God's people. We as a culture, we as a world, are living the same experiment. And it's interesting, I started to think about it as I thought about these verses, as I thought about our own lives, and, and it kind of came to my mind, it's kind of a prodigal son experiment. We kind of want to take all the blessings that God gives us, and then we want to run after something different. We feel like God's not giving us enough. We feel like we need more, and so we're saying to God, I'll take that, yes, but I'm going to go my own way, and I'm going to do my own thing as well. That's what the teacher does here, and he finds it wanting. And we do the same, and I'm just going to run through these things again in relation to our own culture. And you're going to identify. I probably don't even need to do this because you know. You know. And there's something in us that just keeps saying, are you sure? It might be one of the biggest, hardest things in our faith to believe that really this is true when you chase after the things of the world. It's not going to fulfill you. Distraction. You guys probably know Jerry Seinfeld. Famous comedian. Here's a quote that says, Everybody's looking for good sex, good food, and a good laugh because those things are islands of relief in what's often a very painful existence. We're reaching out. We're trying to grab onto things to distract us because life is hard. That's true. Scripture tells us life is going to be hard. We're constantly scrolling on our phones. We're sending funny memes back and forth. We get caught up in alcohol and drugs and all kinds of other things to try to cope with or escape the reality of our world. Paradise, we dream of a bigger house and a nicer neighborhood. We want our own slice of heaven here on earth. But no matter what we have, we know that sometimes there's something in us that longs for more. We look at what other people have and we're a little bit jealous We live in America, and we love stuff, right? You know that's true. I thought to myself, do I have one empty shelf in my house? I have a lot of shelves in my house. I don't think one is empty. Every shelf is full. That might be true of you too. Many garages never see a car because there's no room. We have them so full of stuff. Storage units are big business in our country, because we can't even fit everything in our house, in our houses that we own. Now let me throw just a few stats at you real quick that might blow you away as much as they did me. America has 3.3% of the world's children, and we consume 30% of the world's toys in America. When asked, the average American estimates, someone said, hey, of all the clothes in your closet, how many do you think you wear? And most Americans, on average, it came out to, I think I wear 56%, probably 56% of all the stuff in my closet, which isn't that great, really. And then when they went and they kind of researched, they found it was closer to 18 Most people wear about 18% of the clothes that are in their closet. And the last one, because October is coming and Halloween is close, did you know Americans spend $500 million a year on costumes? For our pets. (laughs) I was thinking about that yesterday. Last night I was looking for an ironing board. By the way, all the stores are sold out of ironing boards. I was walking through Target and there's people sitting there looking at the costumes for their dog. And it just, nothing wrong with buying costumes for your dog. They're very cute. But I'm just saying, we love stuff. Wealth, we believe if we had a little more money, we'd be happier and life would be easier. Entertainment, I'm just going to give you one thing. And this might cost me. Sports are a big entertainment business. I love sports. But here's just something interesting. In 2021, the sports industry was worth $354 billion. In one year, it jumped to $501 billion, 2022. By 2026, I estimate it'll be worth $707 billion. And it just keeps climbing. Sports are fun. Sports are good. They're fun to play. They're fun to watch. But I started thinking about sports, too, because I spent my whole life playing sports. It's kind of the cycle. Like Aaron talked about last week, you know, the the water flows into the sea. It never rises. It just goes back, and it's this big cycle. It's kind of like sports, too. It's such a big deal until the season's over and and a champ is crowned, and then you don't really care. You're just excited for the next season to come, and you do it all over again, and it's good, and it's entertaining. And it's fun. Sex. Pornography is over a hundred billion dollar business in our world. Forty million Americans consume pornography on a regular basis. Our culture and our world is obsessed with trying to find pleasure through sex on a screen, through sex in many varieties outside of the bounds of marriage. When we walk away from God and we try to find pleasure It leads us to bad places, and I would say pornography and the pursuit of happiness and sex is maybe the biggest con job that we've seen. It gives nothing, and it takes so much. And then fame. People these days will do just about anything to become famous. There are so many people that dream of being famous on their favorite social media platform. We think a Million followers, a 100 million views, like, "I've got it made. If I can do that, life is golden." But I don't think that's necessarily true. Do you? We're living the same experiment, and I think when we're doing it without the Lord, we're getting the same results. It's heavily. It's meaningless. We know we're not satisfied, even though we're tempted to keep running after those things, we know. And so here's what i like to do. I'd like to look at three things, three ways to try something different. As God's people, as people of Jesus, let's try these three things. Number one, let's don't settle. I don't know if you realize it, but running, when we run after the things of the world because we think they're better, we think they're more, we're actually settling for less. We're accepting a life that's so much less than what it is that God wants to give us. And there's something in us, sometimes it takes a while to figure this out, but God is not a killjoy. God's not thinking, man, if they go and do all this stuff, it's going to be so awesome. They're going to have so much fun. It's going to be so good for them. Life will be so grand, but I don't want life to be like that for my people. So I'm going to try to keep them away from all those things. No, no. God knows where it's going to take us. He knows when we partake in those things in a way that's outside of the way He wants us to, outside of the boundaries He sets up, that's going to lead to bad places, that's going to lead to hurt and pain and dead ends. He wants us to experience the best of life. So in fact, it's not us missing out we have this fear of missing out to maybe what the world has experienced but when you think about it it's actually those who don't know christ and aren't giving themselves fully to him they're the ones that are missing out but we get it mixed up so easily god offers us more and we keep settling for less and in the end we come up empty it's hell. i'm going to ask you three hard questions How much time, attention, and money do you spend on the pursuit of making yourself, your kids, your grandkids successful? Question number two, does your definition of success include one or more of the things that the teacher was running after? Question number three, are we ignoring or giving lip service to or putting off until later the things that will actually help us and our kids and our grandkids experience life the way that God planned? To experience the joy that Christ died for us to experience? Do we say right now we're going to focus on these things and give ourselves fully to these later on we can get to Jesus? Into the God stuff. We've got to stop settling. We've got to stop chasing the wind. We're going to come up empty-handed every time. We have more information available, yet we know less. I mean, think about it. I don't have my phone on me, but we rely on that so much. Not, it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't until this last year that I memorized my wife's phone number. If I would have lost my phone, I would not have known how to get in touch with her there's so much stuff that we trust technology to remember for us that we don't even feel like we have to know things anymore we're more connected than ever to people in our community to our friends through social media to the world through travel and yet we're lonely we've got more cool stuff yet we're still unsatisfied sex and freedom of sexual expression is everywhere but so is brokenness and confusion and longing for real love we have access to all the world has to offer. In fact, if you were, I just thought, man, if generations in the past just looked forward and all they saw was like what we have available, it seems like they would think, these, these have got to be the happiest people in history. Look at all of that. Stuff we could only dream of. And yet we're in the midst of maybe the biggest mental health crisis ever. It's not making us happy. We're missing something. And our culture calls it progress. The world cheers us on when we run in the opposite direction of the Lord. When we run after these things and we we give our whole hearts to them, the world, go for it. Make yourself happy. It's all about you. But I think we know that that's not true. There is a right direction. It's a direction that God wants us to go. It's His best. So, what do we do instead? Number two, slow down and enjoy the pleasures of life that God gives us, knowing that they're gifts from Him. And just see them for what they are. Don't look at them hoping to find your identity in them, hoping to find fulfillment. All the things he gives us, all the things on this list in their appropriate setting are gifts from God to be enjoyed as part of this life. And the way that we can do that best, I think, is, number one, we see them as gifts, and so we see them as part of God's grace. God, thank you for giving me that. When we see them as gifts and not like, look what I did for myself, look what I've earned for myself, I deserve this, then it moves us to thankfulness. We're able to say, Lord, thank you for giving me something I don't deserve. Thank you for this gift. When we become thankful, I think it leads us to contentment. To say, you know what? This is enough. I'm thankful for what God has given me. I don't have to be always searching for, longing for, running after more. And I think when we become content, that's where we find joy. That's where we find happiness. In relationship with the Lord, leaning on Him, thankful for all that He's given us, not chasing after all the things of the world in a way that's unhealthy, but appreciating the things as gifts from him. It's about priorities and perspective. It's about Jesus first. And when we put Jesus first, everything else falls into its rightful place. Aaron took us to the end of the book last week. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of mankind. That's the end. With all this, he says, in the end, here's what I know. Fear God and keep his commands. This is the duty of men. And what does it look like to keep his commands? The biggest command, the greatest command, love the Lord your God with everything that you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. If we do those things, I believe we're doing God's will. We're doing what we were created to do, and it's there that we will find happiness. It's there that we will experience pleasure. It seems, that seems like a paradox to the world. Wait, what? Give yourself away? Wait, what? Focus on other people instead of yourself? Wait, don't chase these things and that's where you're going to find happiness and contentment? How is that possible? But I think if you've tried it, you realize that it's true. Number three, can we believe that Jesus is enough? Can we believe that the gift that we've gotten in Jesus Christ and him dying for us and him offering us not only eternal life but a better full life here on earth knowing that we are children of God and that whatever he wants to give us is okay because we're always going to have him everything else is hevel it's here and it's gone it's not going to last but what's going to last is a grace we have from Jesus and our relationship with him it's never Jesus plus one Jesus plus something else will make me happy Just Jesus. You know, in this whole book, there's a lot of kings. Jesus is the only one that did it right. He's the only one that really put his people first. He stood on the top of a mountain with the devil at one point, and the devil said, you know what? See all these kingdoms and all the splendor? It could be yours. I'll give it to you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus knew. He knew the truth of what I think this scripture is trying to tell us. It's empty. That it would have been empty. He knew that life with the Father, doing the will of the Father, was where it was at. He said, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only, quoting Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. That's our King, Jesus. He's enough for us, and in Him we'll find pleasure and joy, our identity and contentment. Fear God and keep His commands. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book, which can be confusing, but it also gets at the heart of our struggle to figure out life with you versus life without you, to figure out happiness and pleasure, to bring us back when we run our own way and have our own prodigal journeys, wanting all the benefits that you have to offer but wanting to go our own way at the same time. Lord, I just ask that you would draw our hearts near to you in any way in our lives right now where we seem to be running the wrong direction. Would you turn us around? Would you help us to trust that your way is good, that your way is right, and give us a heart for the world around us who is running fast down a dead-end path, that we would share you, the good news of who you are and what you have to offer with them as well. We pray it all in the powerful name of Jesus, our King, who loves us so well. Amen.